Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Nancy Pelosi's emotional speech today before the House of Representatives in which she announced she will be stepping down as Leader of the House but remain a member of Congress. Joining us is someone who knows her well, John Lawrence, a visiting professor at the University of California Washington Center who worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, the First Pelosi Speakership and the Coming Midterm Election, and we'll discuss how the demonization of her by Republicans led to the attack on her husband, while the motive for demonizing Nancy Pelosi was always mostly to do with how effective she has been. Then, with the Republicans eking out a narrow victory to take over the House, we will speak with Sidney Blumenthal a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, Trump is Now Effectively in Control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Then we look into the Dutch court's conviction today of two Russians and a Ukrainian for the shootdown of a Malaysian passenger airliner over Ukraine, one of whom, a former Russian intelligence officer, is now Putin's man in charge of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. Joining us is Ambassador Cynthia Snyder, a professor of diplomacy at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a former dean at the School of Diplomacy at Dubrovnik International University. From 1998 to 2001, she served as the United States Ambassador to the Netherlands, during which time she led initiatives in cultural diplomacy, biotechnology, cybersecurity, and education. Then finally, with the world's population skyrocketing in less than a century, from 2 billion to now 8 billion, we will speak with John Bongatz, the Vice President Distinguished Scholar at the Population Council, where he's worked for over four decades. He serves as chairman of the panel on population projections of the National Academy of Sciences at the National Research Council and as a member of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences, the United States National Academy of Sciences, and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is John Lawrence, a visiting professor at the University of California, Washington Center, who has worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, the First Pelosi Speakership and the Coming Midterm Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Lawrence. Thank you very much, Ian. It's good to be with you again. 
Well, thanks for joining us, John. And Nancy Pelosi announced today that she's stepping down from the leadership of the Democratic caucus. And, of course, the Democrats have lost the House to the Republicans, so she will no longer be Speaker. She made a very emotional speech today. How did it strike you? Very, very emotional, uh, very personal. Uh, as she indicated in her speech, her relationship to the House of Representatives and to the and to Capitol Hill goes all the way back uh, to her father, who served as a member of Congress. And uh, she has spent herself now 35 years there, uh, the last 20 years uh, as leader of the Democratic Caucus in the House. That's the second longest in modern history. And uh, so it's a very emotional time for her, I'm sure, to uh, step back from from those responsibilities. And she said uh, today, addressing the House, never did I think I'd go from homemaker to House Speaker. And, but then she went on to declare, the hour has come for a new generation to lead the Democratic Caucus that I greatly respect. So if she's saying that, that kind of rules out Jim Clyburn, who's 82, and Stanny Hoyer, the majority leader, who's 83. So who, who, who do you think she's referring to, or just in general, a younger generation? Well, and, and Stanny Hoyer, in fact, has just announced that he's going to step down as the, uh, he will, from the majority leader, he will not seek a leadership position in the, in the 118th Congress. And I think that was widely expected, that uh, this uh, triad of leaders uh, who had led the caucus for uh, altogether uh, for a decade and a half would probably leave the stage uh, together. I think one of the reasons she feels comfortable doing that is that there is a diverse uh, group of younger members who have been in leadership positions selected by the caucus, have learned the challenges of of keeping a caucus together, of legislating, uh, of defending the House of Representatives as an institution, and uh, she feels that she can leave leave the uh, these responsibilities in good hands. I would add that she's not leaving the House of Representatives. She will be there as an asset and as a uh, as a mentor uh, as the caucus goes forward. Um, but I think she feels confident that that group of diverse younger leaders that she had a major role in elevating is now prepared to take on these responsibilities. Well, there is, a, of course, the assistant speaker is Catherine Clark, Democrat of Massachusetts. She's 59. Pete Aguilar, a Democrat of California, is 43. And, and the Democratic caucus chair, Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, he's uh, 52. You mentioned mentorship. Of course, she was mentored, was she not, by Representative Phil Burton here in California. Yes, she was very close to Phil Burton and to Phil's wife, uh, Sala, who succeeded uh, Phil in office in 1983 and then uh, who really embraced uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, in 1987 to be her successor. Uh, she learned, I think, important lessons with Phil Burton, um, lessons that have served her well in terms of dealing with the disparate factions within the Democratic caucus legislatively. Uh, but also the importance of organization and the ground game in uh, in running campaigns and winning elections. So she, I think, would very happily uh, uh, accept the mantle of, of having been mentored by Philip and Sala Burton. 
Well, the thing that I most like about her, John, and you know her well, of course, is that she just calls it like it is. For example, when the U.S. got bogged down in Iraq and Afghanistan during the George W. Bush administration, she said, George W. Bush is an incompetent leader. In fact, he's not a leader. He's a person who has no judgment, no experience, and no knowledge of the subjects that he has to decide upon. Not to get personal about it, but the president's capacity to lead has never been there. In order to lead, you have to have judgment. In order to have judgment, you have to have knowledge and experience. He has none. Now, of course, George W. Bush is looking good in comparison to Trump. But likewise, she was very blunt with Trump, calling him out for the incompetent, dangerous, reckless fraud that he is. And I recall that incredible video of her confronting him, basically saying something like, with you, all roads lead to Putin. You know what, what I'm referring to? Yes. Well, you know, she she was tough with them. She was tough with Barack Obama, too, because inherent in her view of her job uh, is that she is the leader of a co-equal legislative branch of government. And uh, she put a lot of effort uh, into learning the issues. And of course, she has a large caucus that has an enormous amount of expertise. And I think she would become very frustrated uh, both with uh, some of the policy differences uh, between the Congress and and the White House of various administrations, but also uh, very often with the executive branch's lack of understanding about how to manage such a large and disparate entity as the House of Representatives. And uh, I remember uh, very very clearly one time her confrontation with the then mayor of New York, uh, uh, Bloomberg, who challenged her on a on a strategic decision she had made concerning legislation. And she told him, I don't I don't tell you how to run New York. Don't tell me how to run the uh, House of Representatives. She did not take a step backwards uh, to anybody. And uh, if you were going to go to battle with Nancy Pelosi on substance, you, you'd better you'd better have brought your lunch because the probability was she's going to know more about the subject than you did. Well, but on the dark side, she has become the symbol of Republican demonization, and that's gone on for decades, right? Why they've chosen her, I don't know. I guess it has something to do with San Francisco, whatever. The fact that she's a woman, that she holds her own, more than holds her own. But it culminated with the attack on her husband, surely. Yeah, I, you know, this issue of why has she been so demonized, I think you've you've touched on on many of the, the key issues, you know, even before she was a member of the House of Representatives, before she even thought of running for the House of Representatives, the idea of a San Francisco liberal was the negative image that uh, the uh, Republicans had cooked up to symbolize all the policy and cultural excesses of that they believed the, the Democratic Party embraced. And then, of course, along comes a very smart, attractive, skilled woman liberal from San Francisco. It's it's like Nirvana uh, for the Republican uh, message uh, operation. But I think if you asked her why did they come after her, uh, it's none of those things. It's because she was effective. She was effective in raising money to support her candidates. She was effective in recruiting candidates. She was effective in passing legislation, whether she had a large margin or a, sh a small margin as she's had for the last two years. And uh, they believed that uh, they had to stigmatize her and take her down uh, as a way of, of attacking the Democratic Party 
uh, more more broadly. Uh, she, she never really took a lot of the criticism personally. I don't think that's what bo- that didn't bother her. She knew she was in a political battle and she was going to become uh, the the object of the criticism. But she always believed, and I think she's right, that it was because she was effective. Well, but you know, so much of the criticism comes from the Republican right, and that's also one and the same as the religious right, because that's a huge part of it. And I've always been absolutely <laughs> mystified as how you could paint Nancy Pelosi as somehow not having Christian family values, for God's sake. She's a mother of five. She's a very devout Catholic. That seemed to me to be her strength, frankly. It was a great source of strength for her. You know, she is, as you say, a a very strong person of faith. She puts a lot of the policy initiatives that she has pursued, whether it's investing in children, uh, the uh, a moral obligation to provide health care as a right, protecting the planet uh, from climate change for future generations. It's all put in a in a in a very um, religious and ethical. Uh, context for her. Uh, she is, as you know, somebody who who regularly attends mass, who takes her faith very seriously. Uh, and I remember uh, one time uh, the President Trump uh, attacked her and said that she couldn't possibly be a person of faith. Uh, I, that was probably one of the most insulting things that anyone could have said to her, because faith has been a very fundamental part of her of of, of her motivation for holding public office in the first place, and also for the kinds of policies she pursued. So just in closing then, John Lawrence, what's your parting thought here on this day that your former boss has stepped down? Well, it's bittersweet. uh, And I think that's how anybody who worked with her will feel. Uh, It was a great honor to work with her, to see a master politician uh, at work. Um, She elevated the importance of the House of Representatives and Congress as a co-equal branch of government. Uh, She showed that she was not afraid to take enormous political risks, whether it was with her own members and passing health care or uh, in supporting uh, Republicans, uh, as she did with President uh, Bush during the financial crisis, even though she knew it would be extremely, uh, extremely difficult. Um, She kept a party united, whether she had a big margin, as she did during the period I write about an arc of power or a very, very tiny margin, as she's had for the past two years. Uh, And I think that she really does view as an important part of her legacy, this elevation, not only of herself as the first woman speaker, but of women and minorities uh, as a growing uh, active component of of the Congress uh, in the way in which they are in in the United States. The, The Congress increasingly represents the diversity of the United States. The positions of power in Congress represent that diversity. And Nancy Pelosi has a lot to do with that legacy. Well, John Lawrence, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you again. Appreciate it, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with John Lawrence, who's a visiting professor at the University of California, Washington Center, who's worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, the First Pelosi Speakership and the Coming Midterm Election. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Donald Trump is now effectively in control of the United States House of Representatives. I left my heart in San Francisco 
high on a hill It calls to me Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for the Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker. And his books include the bestseller The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, Trump is now effectively in control of the House of Representatives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Glad to be here, Ian. So they've just squeaked out a narrow victory, and I don't know what the final figures are. I think probably they say about a seven-seat majority, but everybody's predicting that and the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is going to have a miserable time. But what you're saying is that basically this is a victory for Trump. At the very moment, the punditry is suggesting that his announcement to run for the presidency has fallen flat. He's got a real ace up his sleeve, has he not, Sidney? Yes. For all intents and purposes, Donald Trump is the de facto Speaker of the House. He controls... Kevin McCarthy, if he becomes speaker, through the preponderance of the right wing in the House Republican Conference, particularly through the Freedom Caucus, which is led by the far right winger Jim Jordan of Ohio, who will be named the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, conducting inquisition after inquisition against the Democrats, to pursue not only the Republican agenda, but Trump's personal agenda to defend himself against the many inquiries and um, investigations that are ongoing against him and his legal jeopardy. So to begin with, uh, the red wave, much uh, trumpeted, by virtually everyone in the mainstream media failed to appear. And now the conventional wisdom that Trump is completely finished and is an exhausted volcano is proven at least wrong to the degree that he has uh, incredible ultimate influence over the House of Representatives right now. Well, McCarthy's saying that Jim Jordan is a great friend. Probably my greatest advocate is Jim Jordan. He's also being supported by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Both of them are incredible Trumpsters, right? Well, both of them were um, very um, intent on uh, overthrowing um, McCarthy and uh, had been his fervent opponents in the past. And the reason that McCarthy touts Jim Jordan now as his ally is because he was his enemy. And the fact is that uh, Jim Jordan and the others don't trust McCarthy at all. And he exists at their sufferance, not the other way around. And for someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who says she backs uh, McCarthy for the speaker, there's only one reason. 
and that's because he's given her a favor. She doesn't do things for nothing. One of the favors he's given her is that she's going to have the right to investigate the maltreatment, supposedly, of the January 6th insurrectionists in jail. Those are going to be very vivid and squalid uh, hearings. She's also going to get a terrific committee assignment. In the last Congress, because of her uh, threats to murder members of the House, she was stripped of her committee assignments, but now she's going to be rewarded. But isn't she and Jordan and the Freedom Caucus essentially agents for Donald Trump? That's why you say that Trump is the de facto speaker. Yes, Jim Jordan has made that clear. Uh, they all uh, pledge fealty to Trump. Before the election, Jim Jordan uh, issued two letters, one to the uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, the other to the FBI Director Christopher Wray, and a more than 1,000-page report laying out um, the questions that they wanted to, that Jordan wanted to pose for future investigations when he claims the chairmanship of the House Judiciary Committee. Many of them involved defending Trump from the uh, DOJ's investigations. In fact, Jordan asks for the um, sources of the DOJ's um, ongoing probes into Trump. In effect, what Jim Jordan is doing is attempting on Trump's behalf an obstruction of justice in the Mar-a-Lago case and many other cases like the fake electors scheme that's being investigated. So Jim Jordan is very much Trump's agent. He is the head of the Freedom Caucus. He is the chair of the uh, Judiciary Committee. And uh, whenever you hear McCarthy say uh, that Jim Jordan is his friend, that is a measure of McCarthy's fear. So he's going to be Trump's lawyer as well as his chief investigator of investigating the investigators, right? The House of Representatives will now be the law firm that Trump has uh, wanted. Trump has um, a series of um, uh, incompetent uh, boob lawyers um, because he can't uh, get first class lawyers. None of them will um, uh, work for him. But now he has the House of Representatives at his beck and call, willing to conduct investigations into the investigations, willing to obstruct them, willing to um, uh, shine a false light on them. Even I will uh, hazard a guess um, at some point uh, to call Attorney General Garland not only before them, but possibly to impeach him for um, uh, uh, dining to investigate Donald Trump's uh, many crimes. So Trump's law firm is now going to be the House of Representatives. So Sidney Blumenthal, in terms of foreign policy, we just had at the G20 in Bali, Indonesia, the entire G20 condemned Russia and to the point where Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov had to leave early. Also, the United Nations General Assembly is condemning Russia. Now Russia is, is literally conducting massive war crimes by raining missiles down 
on civilians in Ukraine and destroying civilian infrastructure ahead of the winter. Yet there is a pro-Putin caucus in the House represented by McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Are they going to cut off funds? They're the only friends that Putin has in the entire planet here in the United States House of Representatives, for God's sake. Well, the pro-Putin caucus of the um, House Republican Conference is the strongest opponent of uh, sustaining uh, Ukraine in the entire Western world. And they are objectively, as it were, supporting Putin's efforts by undermining uh, Ukraine. McCarthy is not really part of that. He's just uh, a complete a weak reed who bends in the wind. He said that there would be no blank check for Ukraine, then he took it back. That's uh, classic McCarthy, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, out of weakness in, in each case. But I think that uh, this caucus will attempt to um, undermine uh, aid to Ukraine. I don't think they'll be successful. Uh, certainly the Republicans in the Senate are a staunch in their uh, support for aid to uh, Ukraine, unlike this caucus in the House. There's an additional point that needs to be raised, which is that Putin is counting on Trump and any blow uh, against Trump politically is also a blow against Putin. He's desperate to get Trump back in office. He's desperate to bolster him. He's desperate to uh, continue to polarize and divide um, the United States. Um, he's desperate to subvert our political system. He's desperate um, to uh, support Trump uh, in his ongoing coup, which is what all of this is, amounts to. And any defeat uh, for Trump along the way is is a setback for Putin. So the midterm results um, rather than a red wave, and the Senate going for um, the Democrats and bolstering Biden was a n not, not only a setback momentarily for Trump, but also for Putin. So, Sidney Blumenthal, what happened then to the failed frozen yogurt shop owner from Bakersfield, California, Kevin McCarthy, who some time back when Speaker Paul Ryan and he were in a Republican conference, McCarthy said, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabacher and Donald Trump are on Putin's payroll. Yeah, um, McCarthy um, is not trusted by Trump fully because um, it's sometimes um, he acts as though he's under a sodium pentothal and speaks um, the truth. Um, when he blurted out that he, uh, Trump is being paid by Putin and then said, I swear to God, um, which was widely reported, uh, something he said in the House Republican conference meeting, um, Trump was, of course, furious. And similarly, uh, McCarthy um, uh, committed the gaffe of telling the truth about the Benghazi hearings when he said it was uh, being uh, staged entirely to drive down Hillary's poll numbers. Um, and that just is, ha is grist for why the far right doesn't trust him, because um, he, he understands that the basis of what 
is being done is cynicism, hypocrisy, and falsehood for um, uh, partisan political purposes. Um, but he's willing to go along with it. Yet uh, those on the right never trust him. So he's in a constantly weak uh, position. Um, and he has to keep dancing faster and faster just to stand still. Well, that's your article, Sidney Blumenthal, at The Guardian. Trump is now effectively in control of the U.S. House of Representatives, points out that during the coup attempt led by Trump, when the mob stormed the Capitol, they were yelling, hang Mike Prince, as well as they wanted to kill and capture Nancy Pelosi. Kevin McCarthy was on the phone to Trump, and Trump famously said to him, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. Then McCarthy replied, am I upset? They're trying to effing kill me, McCarthy screamed. Who the F do you think you are talking to? So there again is the other McCarthy, but he, he, he's gone, right? He's the guy well, that actually deals with reality and has a conscience and has principle. That's, he's just gone. Well, immediately after the January 6th um, coup attempt, uh, McCarthy uh, not only had that uh, conversation with Trump excoriating him, but also uh, raised the idea that cabinet members should invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump. But um, but then he and then he defended Trump uh, in uh, the impeachment and totally caved. Uh, Trump called him a pussy. And then after Trump left office, but not before January had ended, a week after Biden was inaugurated, McCarthy flew to Mar-a-Lago to, um, to bend his knee before his emperor um, in a kind of uh, apology for um, uh, what he had said and done during the January 6th events. So he... He knows he literally doesn't have a leg to stand on uh, within his caucus, except for the far right. And he, uh, no matter what he says, um, that uh, admits what the truth is about what's going on, he will always reverse himself. And of course, he persuades everybody of his weakness and cowardice and is in a perpetually um, uh, unstable position, thereby also providing power and influence to Trump and his zealous allies in the House. So just in closing then, Sidney Blumenthal, the Republicans wouldn't even be in this situation uh, where they've eked out a very narrow majority, but for the four seats that were lost in New York, which is almost incomprehensible. And even out here in California, for example, Christy Smith could have beaten Representative Mike Garcia here in, in Los Angeles because all the money went to Karen Bass to stop the avalanche from the of $100 million from the real estate developer who's a Republican pro-life character who said he was a Democrat pro-choice, who ran as a pro-choice Democrat. So... This is what I don't understand. What happened to the Democrats in their, in their most blue of blue states? Somehow they screwed up and let the Republicans steal some seats. 
Well, the, the Democrats in New York State screwed up in their um, redistricting. Uh, they overreached um, uh, egregiously. They were slapped on by a, uh, the state court, which then turned over uh, the um, redistricting to um, a, um, an academic uh, who was uh, who who cluelessly created a series of um, districts in New York that were weighted towards the Republicans. And then there was nothing the Democrats could do about it. In Ohio, the Ohio Republicans redistricted and gerrymandered the seats to favor the Republicans outrageously. An Ohio Supreme Court struck it down and then would not enforce their own decision. And so the elections went forward on the uh, gerrymandered districts in Ohio, but not in New York. Same thing happened in Florida without the court decisions where DeSantis redistricted, forced to redistricting and gerrymandered. So this house with a very narrow margin for the Republicans under 10, that's ungovernable and will lead to certain chaos and the control of the right wing and ultimately behind that, the influence of uh, one Donald J. Trump uh, through his agents uh, in the Freedom Caucus um, has really been determined by the uh, redistricting and gerrymandering, um, none dare call it democracy. Well, Cindy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, Trump is now effectively in control of the U.S. House of Representatives. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the Dutch court's conviction of two Russians and a Ukrainian for the shootdown of the passenger airliner over Ukraine, which killed all passengers on board, including 80 children. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ambassador Cynthia Snyder, who's a professor of diplomacy at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the former dean of the School of Diplomacy at Dubrovnik International University. From 1998 to 2001, she served as a U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands, during which time she led initiatives in cultural diplomacy, biotechnology, cybersecurity, and education. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ambassador Cynthia Snyder. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. It's good to talk to you again, Cynthia. And a Dutch court today found three men guilty of murder for shooting down uh, the passenger jet, Malaysian passenger jet MH17 over Ukraine in 2014, killing 298 people, including 80 children. And they've named the three that they've convicted, obviously, 
Igor Gherkin, who is now Putin's guy, the so-called leader of the Donetsk People's Republic, Sergei Dobrinsky, who apparently transported the Buk missile launcher, and Leonid Kachenko, who was overseeing the, the transference of the Buk missile, which came from Russia, where Gherkin had it. They had it in a barracks. And Gherkin himself, of course, is a former Russian intelligence uh, FSB officer. So the thing that that I'm here, and you, you're obviously in touch with the press in the Netherlands, a lot of the families of the victims are saying that if only the West had gotten tough with Putin when he did this horrendous act for which he's responsible, we wouldn't have this war going on in Ukraine. What do you think of that? Well, of course, it, it, it's hard to predict, but I can completely understand that perspective. And I think they're particularly from, you know, these poor families. I mean, what a shock. Their family members are, you know, most of them going for a vacation in Bali and the plane is shot from the sky. I mean, no wonder they are so aggrieved and, and so upset. And But I do think they're not the only people who now look back on the 2014 um, situation in the Donbass and, and in Crimea and kind of shake their heads and say, where, where was the world at that point? Why did we just let that happen? You know, why didn't we really understand more Putin's thinking? Uh, he hadn't revealed it to the degree that he has now. You know, this is now with his uh, articles that he's written and his speeches, his, his quote-unquote vision for a reunited Russia and going back to Russia's origins and really, you know, fighting a war about history as much as about territory. He hadn't been through all that then, but now and with 2020 hindsight, we can see what he was beginning to do in 2014. And, you know, I think it's like anything. If, if you let authoritarians or extremists get away with breaking international law, sooner or later you're going to pay for it and sometimes in very, very serious terms, as we are now. Well, but but the, I do want to say... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, what did you want to say? Well, I just want to say that, you know, people might also say, well, great, these people were tried in absentia, you know, we're never going to catch them. What does this really mean? And I actually think it really means a lot that a serious court, and, you know, The Hague is the capital of international law, but this was a Dutch court, uh, that a serious court spent two years researching this um, shooting down of this plane from the sky and gathered very, very firm evidence to prove that it was indeed these three people backed by the Russian government. And of course, Putin has all along denied any involvement, but, and, you know, we know that he, he lies. And so therefore it's really important to have this actual proof of his involvement. And, you know, these people may be apprehended. People didn't think that Milosevic and Karadish would be apprehended. So they may well be apprehensive. Interpol will be after them. They won't be able to go really anywhere outside of Russia. 
so I think even though you don't have immediate action against the people convicted, it's a very important step nonetheless. Well, the intelligence that was gathered, a lot of it actually was gathered by Bellingcat, and they did a remarkable job of identifying the passage of this Buk missile from Russia's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade in Kursk, which is where Igor Gherkin comes into the picture, and he mm-hmm. takes the Buk to the Ukrainian border, and, and it's taken into Ukraine by Sergei Dubinsky, who was overseeing the transportation of the Buk missile launcher, along with Leonid uh, Kachenko, who's a Ukrainian, he oversaw the book and they were acting on Dubinsky's instructions. So they've made it really clear who's responsible. And Gherkin, of course, is a pretty prominent figure, a former FSB officer and Putin's uh, man as the leader of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. This ought to tell people a lot about, I mean, it's not just Putin, it's just so horrible, but the kind of people that he has around him just killers and thugs like the Hadirov, the Chechen warlord who's in Ukraine fighting along with Putin's cook, Prigozhin. I mean, they're just the lowest of the low. So I think the outrage in the Netherlands is from the parents is quite understandable and I think quite accurate. Maybe the world should have stood up to this gangster back then. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you don't believe something like this can happen until it happens. And and even, you know, when this invasion started in February, I'm sure you remember, but I can vividly remember, I happened to be watching CNN and uh, the reporter said, oh, I think I heard a missile. Oh, I think I think that was a rocket. And they're, you know, they're reporting from Kiev, and the war is literally beginning around them. And uh, even though our intelligence absolutely had predicted it, still it was very hard to believe. And unfortunately, you know, we should have recognized the incredible, not only the incredible danger that Putin poses, but also how irrational and narcissistic he is, in case that sounds familiar, that is deliberate. Um, you know, he, he doesn't listen to anybody. He, he, this war is no longer supported by a majority of people, as far as we can tell, in Russia. But, but we understand that he's not being told the truth. He's not being told how poorly they're doing. And he's on a crusade. And I'm not sure that the world recognized at all how far he was willing to go. So do you and think, what an incredible picture he posed. But do you think that given Putin's isolation, the G20 meeting in Bali, they really unanimously went condemned Russia to the point where Lavrov, the foreign minister, sort of left early and and visited the hospital. I think he just couldn't handle the rebukes. The United Nations General Assembly have condemned Russia for what it's doing. It's raining down missiles on civilians, which are war crimes. So one of the things that I find deeply upsetting is that there is a pro-Putin caucus in the American Republican Party. And a lot of them, now that the Republicans have taken the House might well 
pressure McCarthy to cut off funds to Ukraine. So do you I think no. do you think that Go this ahead, might sort of shame them a little? I mean, I don't for the life of me, I don't even understand why anybody in the United States Congress supports Vladimir Putin. Well, in case you haven't noticed, we have some pretty crazy people in our Congress at the moment. I, I, I don't think it's any significant um, number of people, but you may remember when Kevin McCarthy said something, I think it was like a month ago, a couple of weeks ago, about you know looking again carefully at our support for Ukraine. He was roundly criticized, and he walked that comment back. So I think with the very, very slim majority that the Republicans have, I don't think you're going to see a change in our support for Ukraine. And I, But I think you make an excellent point that this conviction makes it, you know, I mean, how anybody could be supporting Putin is, of course, beyond me. But this just makes one more reason why that's a very difficult thing to say out loud. So just in closing, uh, Ambassador Snyder, what are you hearing from the Netherlands in terms of the mood in the country and obviously the, the families of the victims? There's one man who's lost his only child, a daughter, who was on vacation. They were all going to Bali. They were, she was only 17 years old. No, that's exactly the uh, the point I was making, that it, it was such a... I mean, it's, of course, any time a plane is, is shot out of the sky, you remember the Netherlands was the site for the Lockerbie trial for that Pan Am 107 that was shot down by the Libyans, another total shock. Anytime that happens, you know, you're never, never prepared for it. But this was such a totally unlikely uh, circumstance that I think, you know, the families are still so, so deeply uh, deeply bereaved and and so uh, just still in a kind of shock even even two years later. But they do, as you've read and heard, uh, feel some sense of vindication and some sense that you know the steps that are possible to take in terms of uh, achieving some sort of justice have been taken, uh, and they feel grateful for that. But you know, they very much regret the action that was not taken at the time. Well, Ambassador Cynthia Snyder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I uh, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to talk with you. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Ambassador Cynthia Snyder, who's a professor of diplomacy at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the former dean of the School of Diplomacy at Dubrovnik International University. From 1998 to 2001, she served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Netherlands, during which time she led initiatives in cultural diplomacy, biotechnology, cybersecurity, and education. And joining us now is John Bongartz, who is a Vice President and Distinguished Scholar at the Population Council, where he has worked for four decades. He serves as Chairman of the Panel on Population Projections of the National Academy of Sciences at the National Research Council, and as a member of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Bongartz. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And the UN estimated that on November the 15th, the eighth billionth person arrived on this planet. Now, only 12 years ago, 
the planet past the point of 7 billion people. And that's less than a century after the planet supported just 2 billion people. So how do you see the trajectory here? Is it slowing down or is it continuing to rise? Well, yes, it's continuing to rise. Uh, I should point out that we've had an extraordinarily large increase in population, from, as you point out, from uh, two and a half billion people in the middle of the last century to eight billion today. Uh, the projections of the UN, which, which uh, are widely used, uh, expect this number to go to about 10.4 billion uh, by the end of this century. So uh, the most rapid decades of growth are behind us, but we're still expecting uh, two, two and a half billion more people on the planet. And in terms of India, India estimates its population at 1.38 billion, which is slightly right. lower than the 1.4 billion that the World Bank estimates that China has. Now, right. the latest findings have... What, China slowing down? I think there are more people dying in China than being born. Is that true? And that, that India will soon pass China as the world's yeah. most populous country? Yes. So what's happening in China is that uh, China has had a one-child policy. So uh, fertility birth rates have been quite low. And now, uh, just about now, in the next two to three years, we don't really know exactly, uh, it's going to be more death than birth, and that means uh, that the population of China is peaking. Uh, at the same time, the population of India is still growing substantially, because the, primarily because of the higher birth rate. Uh, in China, women on average have just 1.2 children. In India, it's uh, 2.3 or so. So India still has quite a ways to go, and they will overtake China uh, in the next few years. But India has, what, a two-child policy, and China had a one-child policy. Yeah, China, uh, India doesn't really have a uh, target, uh, nothing like the Chinese one-child policy. India has had a uh, good family planning program uh, where women uh, voluntarily are offered access to contraceptives. Uh, the exception is that India had a brief period of coercion in the late 70s, but that didn't go very well. And uh, so uh, India now uh, has essentially a voluntary family planning program. Uh, China, on the other hand, had a one-child policy that started in 1980 and it has now been abandoned. Uh, so it, it, uh, the reason is that uh, China now has so few births that the government is worried about not having enough workers for their industries. And uh, unfortunately, or well, I, I'm not sure that's the right term, but uh, the Chinese government uh, moved from a one-child policy to a two-child policy in 2015. Then they went to a three-child policy last year, and now they have just given up. Uh, in fact, they're encouraging uh, people to have birth uh, in China. Anyway, these, these changes in policies in China from one to two to three have had very little impact uh, on the actual childbearing. 
And that's because women in China or couples in China simply want very few, a small family. And in, you mentioned um, the contraception being available in India. India's right. annual population growth has averaged 1.2% since 2011, compared uh, to 17 uh, in the 10 years previous. So that would indicate that family planning methods jumped to 66.7% in, 2020, in 2021 from 53.5% in 2015. Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, what's happening is uh, couples want fewer children. India is becoming a modern society, or uh, many parts of India. Um, education levels are rising. Women are joining the labor force. And uh, when that happens, uh, women, uh, families want fewer children. Once they want fewer children, they use contraception mostly to uh, reduce their fertility and keep their child, uh, families to a modest size. And uh, there's been a very rapid take-up of contraception in India. If you go back uh, just a few decades ago, uh, very few women in India were using contraception. And the same is true for Bangladesh, for example. And over the past few decades, uh, contraceptive use has gone from near zero to 60% or so. And 60% and is very close to levels that you see in the U.S. and Europe. So, John Bongat, your work on population, uh, studying it at the Population Council for, what, over four decades What's the explanation of why it is in poor countries they tend to have more children? Well, um, if you live in Africa and uh, you live in a rural area, what uh, children are desired uh, for two reasons, or uh, two main reasons. Uh, children help around the house. If you have a farm, uh, 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 girls can help in the house. They can help take care of small children. Uh, and in those days, uh, women had typically six, seven, eight children. So there was a lot of work to do in the house. At the same time, uh, the farmers need uh, labor on the farm. And men, young boys, uh, as, as early as six, seven, eight, can do certain tasks that, that help reduce, uh, help, help uh, the farmers uh, with their work. So the first reason for high fertility is that children are... Uh, useful to parents. The second reason is that uh, in these traditional societies, there's no social security, there's no Medicare. So when you're old, um, you have to depend on your children. And this is always the case. Uh, women, uh, older men and women live with their children until they die. And that old age security is a very important reason for having many children. So that's and, what it was in the... Yeah. I was going to say, what about Latin America? It's often said that the, the influence of the Catholic Church is, it encourages yes. people to yes. have children. Yes. Uh, that has... Uh, so generally speaking, what happens is when societies develop, when they universalize, urbanize, when society become more education and education levels rise, the women want fewer children. But there are factors that help accelerate fertility decline and the factors that uh, prevent or hinder declines. And the presence of the Catholic Church in uh, 
Latin America, but also in the Philippines, for example, which is also a Catholic country, has uh, slowed down things. And uh, there's an interesting contrast in these Catholic countries between what the government says and what people do. So the Catholic Church influence on fertility has been relatively modest at the individual level. Many, many Catholics use contraception, uh, despite what, what the Vatican says. But what happens is the, uh, the Catholic Church has an influence on what the government does, and governments with the heavy influence of Catholic Church often are reluctant to implement family planning programs. So this is why the Philippines and, and a, a number of uh, countries in Latin America don't have the same family planning programs as you find in much of Asia or in North Africa. So, uh, yes, the Catholic Church has slowed things down. Well, just in closing, John Bongatz, from a scientific point of view or, or an ecological point of view, what is the number that the Earth can sustain? Because, as we have pointed out, the population growth uh, has been extraordinary. It, you know, in less than a century, it started out with two billion people, and then just twelve years ago there were seven billion, and now there are eight billion. Yes. Well, I don't think of this as uh, I don't think there is a fixed uh, level of uh, carrying capacity for people of the planet. It depends entirely how these people live. So uh, the impact of an average person in uh, Mali or Bangladesh is much, much smaller than uh, people living in the U.S. or Europe. If everybody lived like we did, we're doing right now in the U.S., uh, using massive amounts of energy and food and, and natural resources, then we couldn't sustain even a few billion people. Uh, and that is the, the biggest problem right now. Uh, if, if everybody lived like the people, uh, the poorest people in the world, yeah, we can probably last uh, a while longer with eight or nine billion people. The, the problem is that every billion people that we add to the planet today is making life more difficult for everybody else. And there's really no good reason for wanting more uh, people on the planet. Well, John Bongatz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with John Bongatz, who's the Vice President and Distinguished Scholar at the Population Council, where he's worked for more than four decades. He serves as the chairman of the panel on population projections of the National Academy of Sciences at the National Research Council, and he's a member of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences and the United States National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past I'm not